welcome to Royally Screwed. My name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're back to the interesting topic of exploring the history of the legends surrounding King Arthur. The last time I did an episode over King Arthur was way back in episode 10, back when this show was on YouTube. So, I'll forgive you if you didn't catch that one. Back then, I did a pretty decent overview as to who King Arthur is, at least as far as the legends go. He was originally an invention of the 5th and 6th century Britons, the Celtic people of modern-day Great Britain, who would eventually become the Welsh. He fought off the Anglo-Saxons and did other kingly things. Then he was co-opted by the Anglo-Saxons after they conquered Britain and turned it into a more English character. After that, France got their hands on Arthur, introduced a couple more main characters like Sir Lancelot, and turned the Arthurian legends into something we'd be more familiar with. But, as I said in the last episode, there's a belief among some historians, myself included, that King Arthur was actually based on a real leader in the Celtic world. Stories about him were exaggerated and stretched across time until he eventually became the legendary king with a magical sword. The first candidate we covered for such a role was Lucius Artorius Castus, a 3rd century Roman military leader who led some sort of grand military campaign in Britain that has since been lost to modern history. The second candidate for Arthur I'll be covering in this episode is a man named Ambrosius Aurelianus. Now, Aurelianus is an interesting figure to consider as the basis for Arthur because he is also a part of modern Arthurian legend, which we'll go over later. But first, we'll go more into the legends of King Arthur, then cover the history of Aurelianus, and then get into how he fits into Arthurian legend and why he's also a candidate for the historical King Arthur. So without further ado, let's take a jump, not into history, but into the legends of King Arthur Pendragon in Out of Legends, King Arthur, Part 2. <laughs> The following is an excerpt from The Morte Arthur by Thomas Mallory. Then he rideth into Tuscany, and winneth towns and castles, and wasted all in his way that to him will not obey. And so too to Spalut and Viterba, and from thence he rode into the vale of Viscount among the vines. And from thence he sent to the senators to wit whether they would know him for their lord. But soon after on a Saturday came unto King Arthur all the senators that were left alive, and the noblest cardinals that then dwelt in Rome, and prayed him of peace, and preferred him full large, and besought him as governor to give license for six weeks for to assemble all the Romans, and then to crown him emperor with chrism as it belongeth to so high a state. I assent, said the king. Like as ye have devised, and at Christmas there to be crowned, and to hold my round table with my knights as me liketh. And then the senators made ready for his enthronization. And at the day appointed, as the romance telleth, he came into Rome and was crowned emperor by the Pope's hands, with all the royalty that could be made, and sojourned there for a time, and established all his lands from Rome into France and gave lands and realms unto his servants and knights, to every itch of his desert in such wise that none complained, rich nor poor. 
Then after this all his knights and lords assembled then afore him and said, Blessed be God, your war is finished and your conquest achieved, insomuch that we know none so great nor mighty that dare make war against you. Okay, so I chose that passage because, surprise surprise, a lot of people don't know that King Arthur in the legends became Emperor of Rome. Also funny because at the time of Arthur, usually dated within the 500s or early 600s CE, Rome was no longer the Roman Empire, or at the very least it had already quote-unquote collapsed. I could have read a lot more from the original book, there's a huge chunk there about Arthur's quest to become the Emperor of Rome, and then it's just... forgotten about? Arthur becomes Roman Emperor and then just never does anything with that new position. It's kinda like how later medieval kings of England were crowned in England but then kinda just lived in France because they liked it there more. But specifically, I chose this passage to highlight Arthur's connection to the Roman Empire. As you can probably tell, Ambrosius Aurelianus is a very, very Roman sounding name. His connection to Rome, whether it was through blood or some other important means, is basically his entire deal in history, which I'll get into in a bit. I covered the sub-Roman period of Britain, the era in British history after Rome left the island in a military capacity back in the first Arthur episode, so it would be weird to retread that ground here. Go back to episode 10 if you want to learn more about sub-Roman Britain. So instead, let's actually talk about King Arthur some more. Specifically, I'll actually inform you more about the whole situation that led to Arthur being crowned Emperor of Rome. As always, whenever I talk about Arthur's legends, I'm using the Mort de Arthur as my source. So anyway, Arthur has just finished up a big battle and is celebrating in Camelot with his knights and the other lords of Britain and its allies. All of a sudden, a dozen envoys from Rome, and you know they're Roman because they're holding olive branches, tell Arthur that he needs to pay up his tribute to Emperor Lucius of Rome. In this Eucronia Mallory has created, Rome is apparently still a vibrant empire despite the fact that the Western Roman Empire had already fallen by the time King Arthur was allegedly first mentioned in history. And it's ruled by Emperor Lucius, a man who never existed. Since Britain was part of the Roman Empire, and in this timeline still is, I guess, the Emperor is mad that Arthur has never paid him in tribute and is ready to march on Britain if Arthur doesn't bow to Lucius's demands. Arthur has the envoy sent away and gathers all of his allies. They all basically agree that Arthur is too great to bow to Lucius. And also, depending on which sources you use for King Arthur, some actually have him being the grandson of Emperor Constantine III, meaning he would have some form of claim to the throne. Instead of paying tribute to Lucius, Arthur and company come up with the great idea to wage war against Rome and have Arthur crowned as the next emperor. So Arthur gathers up a bunch of knights and lords and sails off to France. Meanwhile, Lucius's envoys return and tell him the bad news that Arthur isn't going to cooperate. Lucius then calls on all the forces under the control of Rome. Once again, Mallory goes a bit off the rails with how far Rome's control actually reached. 
He combines the Western Roman Empire with the Eastern Byzantine Empire and then stretches Lucius's control even further east so that he can call upon armies in India. Oh, also there's giants. Like actual fairy tale giants who are willing to fight for Rome because why not? While this in itself is crazy, it perfectly sets up the following chapters for Arthur's grand campaign against the Roman Empire. Okay, but before Arthur can actually lead his army against Lucius in Rome, he's approached by a guy telling Arthur that a giant, this one seemingly unallied with either Arthur or Lucius, has been terrorizing the countryside of France for a few years. Arthur, being the great and powerful king that he is, sets out with Sir Kay, his foster brother, and Sir Bedivere, a one-armed knight of the round table, to take down this giant. The giant has kidnapped several people, which makes Arthur further upset. Even though he's brought a retinue along with him, Arthur decides to 1v1 the giant. After initially landing a blow to the giant's groin, the massive man bear hugs Arthur, disarming him and crushing the king's ribs, and just rolls down the side of a hill. Weird strategy, but okay. Unfortunately for this giant, Arthur has a dagger and uses that to slash away at the giant, while they're still rolling by the way, until the giant is killed. I don't know why this was included in the story, but it was and I enjoy it. Now Arthur can finally confront Rome. He decides to send a group of knights led by Sir Gawain to tell Emperor Lucius that the King of Britain is not going to bow to the rule of Rome. Obviously, Lucius doesn't take this well. As Sir Gawain and the others are leaving, Lucius sends some of his soldiers to attack them. He sends 10,000 of his soldiers to attack them. Sir Gawain and the other knights, being the totally awesome knights of the round table, take on the 10,000 soldiers and kill them all. Another actual battle between Britain and Rome occurs, with a victory for the Britons, and the politicians of Rome tell Lucius that they're kinda worried that maybe Arthur will actually win this whole thing. Lucius is enraged by this and finally decides to fight against Arthur on the field of battle. Once more, the two sides come to blows. Arthur again fights the giant, but this time he's on horseback, slices the giant's legs below the knees, makes a funny quip about how the giant is now the proper height to fight, and then kills said giant. Arthur then finds Lucius during the battle. After Lucius initially lands a decent hit on Arthur, the King of Britain raises Excalibur and slices Lucius in half from head to stomach. The battle ends with Britain as the obvious victor. Arthur eventually visits the site where the Romans have temporarily interred their fallen comrades. Several senators are all who remain of the leadership in Rome. Arthur tells them to bring their dead back to the city. Also, tell the Pope that Arthur defeated Lucius and is asking the leader of the church to crown him as the next emperor on Christmas Day. Now, it should be noted that La Morte Arthur was written in the 1400s meaning that the Holy Roman Empire was a thing, which is different from the original Roman Empire. The Pope would crown the Holy Roman Emperor, but not the Emperors of OG Rome. Anyway, Arthur then continues conquering his way through eastern France, Germany, and northern Italy. None of the locals are happy about this. 
So then Sir Gawain decides it's just the most fantastic time to go off adventuring. You know what we haven't had yet in this story because it's not really something previous Arthurian tales deal with? The Christian protagonists fighting Muslims. Once again, this story was written in the 1400s. The Crusades were very much a thing by this point and King Arthur is a king chosen by God. Anyway, Gawain comes across a Muslim knight. They fight and Gawain manages to get the upper hand but spares the man's life. The knight, Sir Priamus, is overcome by Gawain's sense of chivalry and asks Gawain to help him become Christian. Because that's a thing that happened a lot in Christian stories of this time. Anyway, Gawain agrees to Priamus's request. Priamus then finds out that the Muslims who had been working for Rome but are now without the guidance of Lucius are attacking the countryside in Tuscany. So he calls up Gawain. Together with some other knights from Arthur's alliance, they stop the attacks. From there, everyone arrives in Rome. Priamus is officially baptized, made a knight of the round table, and also given land in France. We then get the passage I read. Arthur is crowned emperor, but sets up a proxy government because he kinda just wants to rule England. Everyone goes home happily ever after for the time being. It's a weird story that is just never really brought up again. So that means it's the perfect time to move on from Arthur to talk about Ambrosius. So who was Ambrosius Aurelianus? Well, would it surprise you that just like Lucius Artorius Castus, we don't know a whole lot about this guy. The first mention of him comes from the writings of a monk named Gildas a 6th century monk who was seemingly the first person to ever make mention of King Arthur. He mentions Ambrosius by name in his grand treatise De Exidio et Conquestu Britanniae, on the ruin and conquest of Britain. It was this rant by Gildas about how the Britons of that day were far inferior to the Great Britons of previous generations, such as King Arthur and Ambrosius. It's basically, Oh, the Britons of yesterday were so great, they know how to take down Saxon invaders. Our leaders today are so weak both on the field of battle and in terms of religious morality. No wonder our nation is going to collapse. But it's Gildas's description of Ambrosius that makes the man an interesting historical figure. Our historian describes him as follows. A gentleman who, perhaps alone of the Romans, had survived the shock of this notable storm. Certainly his parents who had worn the purple were slain in it. His descendants in our day have become greatly inferior to their grandfather's avita excellence. Under him our people regained their strength and challenged the victors to battle. The lord assented and the battle went their way. There's quite a bit to take in with that single paragraph, so let's break it down into smaller parts. First off, Gildas refers to Ambrosius as alone of the Romans. Now, most people do not think that Ambrosius was literally from Rome. He lived in a time where Rome had already pulled out all of its important people off the Isle of Britain at least a generation before his possible birth, which again is unknown to us. He is referred to as alone of the Romans to call upon a lineage of prestige and power. There were still many people who were descended from Roman citizens living in Britain, 
and many of the Celtic Britons had essentially been Romanized over the centuries. Even if the armies had abandoned them, Rome was still this picture of power. Now, we don't know whether Ambrosius was Roman or Brutish. Heck, his name might not even have been Ambrosius Aurelianus. In Welsh, he's referred to as Emrys Wledig, meaning Emperor Ambrose. Was the name Ambrosius just Gildas Romanizing a Celtic name? That is entirely possible. However, connecting Ambrosius with Rome was a clear sign of Gildas saying, Hey, this guy is important and great, just like Rome was. So let's now move on to the next part. His parents who had worn the purple were slain in it. Purple has two possible meanings that people debate over. The first, once more, has to do with Rome. In Roman society, from the Republic period in the BCE era up until its collapse, members of the patrician class, so the upper classes and aristocracy, wore togas lined with purple to denote their role in society. Even today, purple is still symbolically seen as a royal color. Gildas may have been implying that Ambrosius was descended from Roman patricians. Once again, Rome is great, Ambrosius is connected to Rome, ergo Ambrosius is great. However, wearing the purple might also have a religious connotation. Purple has always been a fairly important color for the Christian church. By saying worn the purple and slain in it, Gildas may be telling us that Ambrosius' family, and possibly Ambrosius as well, were considered martyrs, standing up for Christian Britain against the pagan Germanic invaders. Going through the rest of Gildas' description is pretty self-explanatory. His descendants in our day have become greatly inferior to their grandfather's Avita Excellence. Ambrosius' descendants have grown weak and are inferior to his might. The only question people have is Gildas' use of the word for the paternal relationship, Avita. It is mostly translated, as I did here, as grandfather because that is its literal meaning. However, it's also a catch-all term for ancestor. This only complicates things as it pertains to the timeline of Ambrosius' life in the Battle of Baden Hill a major historical battle between the Britons and Saxons where we also get the first historical mentions of King Arthur. Did Ambrosius live and fight during the battle, or was he dead a generation before? Unfortunately, no one knows, so let's keep moving along. Under him, our people regained their strength. We were better before with men like him in charge. The Lord assented and the battle went their way. Because Ambrosius was a good Christian man, God let us win. Now, let me pump the brakes here for a minute to tell you that everyone agrees that Gildas was not trying to paint Ambrosius' grandness in a 100% historically accurate light. Gildas was purposely contrasting Ambrosius to the then-current 6th century British rulers. Nonetheless, Ambrosius is the only figure from Gildas' recent past he calls upon within the De Exidio et Conquestu Britanniae. It's entirely possible that the two were alive at the same time, even if it was only for a few years. So, as little information as we have, and as semi-warped as Gildas' depiction is, this is possibly the best historical image we have of Ambrosius. And it only gets more warped as time moves on.
the next writer to mention Ambrosius Aurelianus was another monk living in Britain, and his name was Bede, also known as Saint Bede. Fun fact about Saint Bede, he's the only Englishman to be mentioned in the Paradiso section of Dante's Divine Comedy, the part that takes place in heaven. Bede lived in the 8th century, meaning that England was mostly Anglo-Saxon at this point with the Celtic Britons having been pushed further west. He's best known for his work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. It was mainly about the history of Christianity in England, but also kind of functioned as a general history of the nation. While he relied on various sources, as his history started getting closer to his own time period, Bede started relying on the writings of Gildas. Bede's description of Ambrosius is more or less the same as his predecessors. However, Bede does state that Ambrosius was one of the British commanders during the Battle of Baden Hill. He also decides to give a general date of the battle as being between 474 and 491, coinciding with the reign of the Byzantine Emperor Zeno. So far, still historically and possibly correct. But the next major piece of literature that mentioned Ambrosius will quickly depart from that trend. It's called the Historia Britonum, attributed as written by a Welsh monk named Nennius in the 9th century. Historia Britonum is almost completely fictional, but it's in this book where we start to see Ambrosius develop from the proto-King Arthur figure into an actual character in those stories. The chapters of the Historia that mention Ambrosius also mainly tell the story of King Vortigern. Vortigern was a semi-legendary king of Britain, meaning he probably existed in some capacity, but the constantly turning gears of history have distorted him into something beyond the truth. Stories of Vortigern mention him as a powerful British king who invites the Saxons into England hoping that they would stop the elder invaders. The Saxons turn on Vortigern and try to further take over the island. Modern historians think that maybe Vortigern was just a fancy title given to Britonic kings and probably not the man's real name. In Historia Britonum, Ambrosius is possibly even separated into two different characters of the same name. In the first section, Ambrosius is written as a boy with prophetic visions. Vortigern is attempting to build his fancy new keep, but everything keeps going wrong. He's told to sacrifice a fatherless boy, whatever that means, something like Anakin Skywalker, I guess, and he finds that boy in Ambrosius. Ambrosius then tells Vortigern, no dummy, it's because two dragons live beneath the hill you're trying to build on. So yeah, obviously we're well into fantasy now. In later traditions, the character Ambrosius would actually be transformed into the wizard Merlin, so, hey, maybe Ambrosius was also the basis for Merlin as well as Arthur. Next time the Historia mentions Ambrosius, it actually calls him Ambrosius Aurelianus. This time, Ambrosius is given a sort of King of Kings role within England and is said to be the only ruler that Vortigern fears. Vortigern's son is given rule over several smaller British kingdoms solely because Ambrosius tells him it's all good. Moving forward in history, our next mention of Ambrosius is the 12th century work Deeds of the Kings of the English, written by English historian William of Malmesbury. Most places I looked into for research for this episode surprisingly didn't mention this one. Mr. of Malmesbury decides to combine the more historical aspects of Ambrosius with the more fantastical elements of Arthurian lore. 
He calls Ambrosius last of the Romans and says he was a British king living during the Battle of Baden Hill. It's also stated that he was king after Vortigern. But the most fictitious part of this story is that William of Malmesbury says Ambrosius was King Arthur's employer, here simplifying Arthur's historical role to a British military leader rather than a king. Our final historical record, by which I mean completely made up, comes from famed medieval British author Geoffrey of Monmouth with his book Historia Regum Britanniae. This book is the last great British work of the medieval era to document the adventures of King Arthur, and it's what would popularize the story and bring them to mainland Europe where France would eventually get the idea to get involved. However, Geoffrey tries to present his book as if it is a true historical tome, so doing a little digging might give us information the other authors didn't. I mean, no, but I can at least try. In this new Historia, Ambrosius is listed as King Arthur's uncle, brother to Uther Pendragon, and son of King Constantine, or in some other translations listed as Emperor Constantine of Rome. Also, Geoffrey just switches Ambrosius' name around so that he's now Aurelius Ambrosius. According to events listed in the Historia, Geoffrey seems to suggest that King Arthur's grandfather reigned somewhere between 440 and 460 CE as he calls upon the events known as the Groans of the Britons. The Groans was basically a last-ditch effort by the Britons to get Rome to help them when tribes from Scotland started coming south and messing things up due to the Roman legions having pieced out. Obviously, Rome did not come back. It was due to this that British leaders first started hiring Saxon mercenaries to come over and help them fight the Scottish tribes. And who was involved with the Saxons? Vortigern. The Historia says that Vortigern usurped the throne of the Britons after King Constantine's death. Geoffrey also replaces the boy prophet named Ambrosius with a younger Merlin. Ambrosius and Uther are shipped off to Brittany in France where they're raised until Vortigern's power begins to fade. Ambrosius is described as a sort of leader of a Britonic rebellion against Vortigern and the Saxons. He burns down Vortigern's castle, killing the usurper king along the way. He then fights against the Saxon leaders and wins. This tale might be, in the loosest sense, a callback to the Battle of Baden Hill. But in a bold swing and miss by Mr. of Monmouth, it's said that Ambrosius calls upon Merlin to help him build a monument to commemorate the fallen Britons following the war. This monument is implied to be Stonehenge, which is actually very ancient. Like ancient ancient, built before 2000 BCE. Geoffrey also then implies that Stonehenge was built near the city of Salisbury. Stonehenge is actually closer to the town of Amesbury, which, fun fact, may have been named after Ambrosius. Ambrosius is then king for a while before he dies and Uther Pendragon takes the throne, paving the way for the stories of King Arthur to begin. It's not the biggest leap in the world to see why some people believe that Ambrosius Aurelianus is the basis for King Arthur. He was a strong British leader who was possibly the last of his kind, at least depending on whose opinion you read. He comes from the same time period that Arthur's stories are set in, which possibly gives him a leg up over other candidates like Artorius, unless Arthurian stories are older than we think. 
Also, given Arthur's sometimes strange connections to Rome, it would make sense that a man known as the Last of the Romans was used as a basis for future interpretations. Honestly, yeah, I can really see Ambrosius being the actual man that King Arthur was based on. That is, if Ambrosius even existed. I mean, the first reference to Ambrosius comes at least a full generation after his death. By this point, historians would have been recording history in Britain for centuries, so it's weird that we don't have any sources written during when he allegedly lived talking about him. But sometimes history works like that. Heck, it's entirely possible that Ambrosius was actually the historical Vortigern. I think that's a theory I'll just roll with from now on. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're jumping back towards the modern era as we cover two very divisive figures from Russian history. Two men who had an idea for the future of the nation that would eventually grow apart and forever alter the history of the 21st century. It's the story of Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky as they try to bring communism to Russia. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. <laughs>